on Textbooked. You're listening to Untextbooked. This is a history podcast for the future that gives young people like us agency and voice in our education. I'm your host, Gabe Hostin. I'm producer Victory. This week, we're back with another story from Untextbooking the Museum Collections. That's right. This week's episode explores Smithsonian's National Museum of American History exhibit named Mirror Mirror, Disney theme parks and American stories. I had the opportunity to tour with the curator, Bethany Bemis. I'm Bethany Bemis, and I'm uh, a museum specialist at the National Museum of American History, part of the Smithsonian Institution. Um, and I curated uh, an exhibit at the museum, Mirror Mirror, Disney theme parks and American stories. That's so cool that Bethany was able to show you around the exhibit. What did you remember from the tour? It was so incredible. I would encourage anyone to check it out. The whole exhibit asks questions about what it means to be American and how does a corporation like Disney reflect a microcosm of the American dream? That's an amazing question to explore, especially regarding something as iconic as Disney. The exhibit included thousands of photos of people across the country submitted from their Disneyland vacations. We tried to include photos uh, from the very first day that Disneyland was open to the very last day that we collected photos in 2020. Um, and it's all photos of people either in front of the castles or in front of the train station because pretty much everyone who goes to a Disney park takes a photo in front of the castle. It's sort of this way that we say, I was here, I took part in this American ritual. And by lining them all up, we see the breadth of people who have had this experience with us. Um, and it connects us to people throughout history. And I think that that is really transformational and important. I thought it'd be really interesting to see some of your Disneyland photos, because you told me that you went, I think, what, every year growing up, which is like a very special treat. Yeah, it's crazy to think. I, I'm super excited to see this photo of yours. Uh, it looks like an amazing uh backdrop of the iconic Disneyland castle. This is, I think, my first visit to any Disney park that's Walt Disney World. And I think it was like 1989. Wow. Um, even though it looks like my dad's shorts come from the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> I love the, I love the track, track vibes, uh, yes. everything around there. <laughs> we had definitely a similar experience too, because I know growing up in Southern California, about 30 minutes away from Disneyland, we'd always go as an annual trip. So here I have uh, with my family, with my two brothers and my parents, um, definitely a little bit hot. So definitely with everybody wearing hats and jeans, it wasn't necessarily the best choice, but everybody was super excited to at least enjoy the ride. So it was definitely one, one to remember, I think. And I think that's why, Bethany, I think I want to jump into maybe talking a little bit more about what Disneyland's role has been in your life or considering that you took a lot of visits uh, to not only Disney World, but also to Disneyland in Southern California, what it looks like for you. When I was growing up, um, we would drive down, took like 16 hours. We would camp in the campground there um, and just enjoy the parks all day. And so growing up for me, it was really just about family memories. Then I started sort of studying it professionally uh, when I got into political history and we were working on an exhibit about the national narrative, what it means to have a story about America, who gets to take part in it. Um, and I realized that for me, it really seemed like it was Disney that was telling us our national narrative. I think there's this conception that the people going to Disney are these Disney adults who go all the time, right? Or they go very frequently. But 
statistically, most Americans will go at least once at some point in their lifetime, which means that we're all having this collective experience. Uh, and in you know today's uh, day and age, we don't have a lot of collective experiences. Um, you know, we're very scattered. There's not things like a town square or a communal church that there were sort of at the turn of the century that we're all experiencing. But what we do have is this Disney experience. We can all agree that Disneyland is iconic. But how did this now iconic theme park get made? To answer that question, we talked to one of the original Disney Imagineers. Hold up. No way. So this guy works with the Walt Disney? Yes, that's right. I'm Robert Gurr, also known as Bob Gurr. Uh, at five years old, I was interested in cars and airplanes. The cars part continued all the way to the day that uh, I was asked to go to the Disney studio to design a body to fit a little chassis of a little car, which turned out to be the Utopia ride. And that puts us right at Disneyland in 1954 in October. Bob is now 92 years old, and he worked with Disney for decades. He was part of the design team for the original monorail, Autopia, the Haunted Mansion, Submarine Voyage, the Matterhorn, bobsleds, you name it. In 2004, he was designated a Disney legend. I was born in Los Angeles 92 years ago, lived uh, in the Los Feliz area, which was only a couple of blocks from Walt Disney in those days, unbeknownst to me at the time. I had a lot of shop classes in those days, which we don't have anymore for education. I had architecture class, of course, and the teacher let me draw cars if I got the architecture part of the lesson done early. So that put me in a position at the, at the architect teacher's suggestion to go to the Art Center School, currently known as the Art Center College of Design. At 20 years old, he moved from California to Detroit, Michigan, where he worked for GM and Ford Motor Companies. But after a year, he decided that was not for him, so he moved back to California. And then I got a call from the Disney studio to go out and talk to them, and then I found out what they needed. I needed a guy that could sketch up a little car body, and they had a little chassis, and uh, the rest is history. That's fantastic, Bob. I'd love to touch upon a little bit about what was it like working on Disney attractions, and can you talk a little bit about what is an Imagineer, and for, for anybody that doesn't really know? All right, in 1954, going into 55, the Imagineering word hadn't been coined yet. That was several years into the future. There's such a gigantic difference in the way business was conducted by a fellow like Walt Disney, you know, being a cartoonist, but being into television, being into films. And Walt was um, always wanted to do something new, something different, didn't repeat anything ever. And he was looking for people that could design this new amusement park that he had an idea for that would generate it around 1938 got delayed numerous times and was able to restart the idea in 1952. If you put it this way, Walt has some ideas, but he doesn't issue orders. He asks people about things. Example, uh, he would talk to some people by walking around in the uh, studio lot, animation building, and he'd engage a little conversation. And he, like he'd say, say, Bob, we're thinking of doing this kind of an idea here. And uh, do you think something like that would work? And then you'd find out 
a day or two later, somebody talks to you and says, you know, Walt was here. He had the goofiest idea. He was asking if we thought it would work. Okay, now what happens is he's left a trail of maybe a half a dozen people thinking about this new unnamed thing. And now when he decides to actually have a meeting or, or go talk to them in their design area, uh, they're already thinking about it. This is an entirely different way than today where Walt's way of doing it, he was planting little seeds and doing that. And he was consistent uh, in the 12 years that I worked directly with him. He did this to everybody else. If you walked around anywhere in the uh, studio at that time, you'd find everybody had the same kind of a story. But all that early method of management by engaging people that stayed for a very, very long time until probably in the mid to late 70s, they, Disney was big enough with their, um, by then they would call them Imagineers. It was a much more complex type of organization. It still happens today that you have companies that, uh, particularly Silicon Valley, there's a lot of young people up there who've got super IQs and they're, uh, <laughs> and they're ready to go do gigantic things. So they have the kind of fun I used to have at Disney in those 50s up to the mid-70s. Wow, that's incredible. And the most exciting part is that a lot of the early attractions like the monorail, Autopia, even the Haunted Mansion are still attractions that a lot of visitors end up seeing and it is iconic for. And I'd like to hear maybe what's the most memorable experience that you've had while designing those rides? Well... I did about 100 designs for Walt, and then after they fired me, I did uh, 150 for everybody else, uh, part of it under my own company. Of uh, The most significant one, from several reasons, was the Mark IV monorail designed to, for opening day in 1971 of Walt Disney World. Now, the way Walt would approach you on these big projects the Mark IV was a very complex, multi-year job, but the Mark I was done directly with Walt, and Walt had his heart set on a monorail in 1952, just by the word monorail, and he says, uh, Bobby, we're going to do our own train, so I want you to uh, get started on ours right away, and he walked out of the room. I kid you not, that is the way he did things with people. If he had people working for him, the reason they were there is because he had a sense they might be able to do stuff that he wanted to do. He never paid attention to a resume. He was more interested in what you're going to do next, not what you did last. That's a, that's a big distinction, that you're not asking for somebody's history. You're looking at what is their potential. So oddly enough, the shape of that Mark I monorail uh, showed up out of my mind and ran out of my out to my pencil to the paper in about two days. I saw certain shapes that would uh, hide the fact that it looks like a loaf of bread sitting on a stick. We have to kind of hide that with a, a feeling of something is more dramatic. So you see the more dramatic part of the vehicle and you don't see the slot in the bottom. It's, it's kind of a way you hide something like that. So in any event, uh, hopping through the whole job, it was totally normal that Walt would launch me onto something. I'll design the outside of it. I'll design the inside of it. But I also designed the structure of everything, 
I get to select all of the components, you know, like power, train, wheels, all the equipment I want to put in it. So I'm, I have all the roles. I'm the chief structural engineer. I'm the production engineer. I'm the external car stylist doing the body on the outside, but I'm a detail interior designer. And at the same time, I wind up supervising much of the manufacturing. And then when we start to test it, I get to be the test driver. There is no such job. <laughs> There's That's no such, just no such, yeah. So every one of the jobs that he gave me was exactly like that. But I just cite that one as the one that um, really set the stage. And I'd only worked for him for five years when he said, do this monorail. That's incredible. I, I can't even uh, begin to imagine the intricacy of detailing and the process from ideation all the way to the development uh, into real life. The reason why we're so interested in exploring Disneyland in this episode is because we were thinking about Disneyland as a staple for American identity. And I wonder if that kind of brings any thoughts or ideas to you when, it, when we think about the majority of individuals know about Disneyland. The majority of Americans have visited Disneyland once in their lifetime as well. What kind of particular images or concepts come to your mind when you hear about this kind of numbers and facts? Well, here's the interesting thing. We were just trying to see if the Disneyland park would make it through to the end of the year in 55. <laughs> Uh, none of us uh, treated it as more than, oh, my God, what a crazy idea. Everybody else says he's nuts anyway. Uh, it might not work, you know. But by Christmas time in 55, we saw so many people showing up uh, that Walt took a breather and said, oh, we're going to do a lot of new stuff for, fi for 1956. He saw it as, that was, oh, we have lots of work to do. But it was many years before, oh, some of us would look and say, you know, this might, this might turn out to be a real thing. There might be some durability here. And at no time did I ever have a feeling that this would be a classic anything. It would just be an amusement park. Maybe by 1982, when the first of the um, Disney blogs and fan clubs would start up, but the, the path going toward that in our eyes historically was we're, we're just breathless trying to get stuff done. We're not looking at, uh, oh, we have, to, we have to revere this classic that we're building. No, we're just trying to get the work done. Even though Bob never imagined his work would become iconic, Disneyland has become a place that reflects, represents, and inspires American values. I asked Bethany what American values are being expressed when someone visits an amusement park. So if you're looking at the Walt Disney World and Disneyland, you know, for when they first start, they're pretty stereotypical 1950s values. Walt Disney comes of age at the turn of the century. Um, he is a poor boy from a white lower class family in the Midwest. He gets your sort of classic education, McGuffey's Reader, etc that emphasizes all of these traits that we like to think make us American, right? Independence, rugged individualism, the idea that we conquer new frontiers. Capitalism is a big one, a big one for Walt Disney. Um, and you see these reflected in the different lands um, at Disneyland in particular. If you think about walking down Main Street, you know, there's really nothing to do there except for shop. And that's sort of this homage to free enterprise. 
It's also a place where the train is coming to town, so new technologies. So all of these values that Walt saw during his own lifetime um, are being reinforced with the stories that he chooses to tell in Disneyland. This kind of idea that Disneyland is a representation of what American identity looks like at the moment in time is very, very fascinating and interesting to me. Yeah, so one of the reasons I believe that Disney remains so relevant today is that they've been able to adapt their version of American values um, that are shown in the parks. You know, one of the things that I really found through my research is that um, people of all different backgrounds, um, you know, different ethnicities, different religions, they have always come to the Disney parks to use them in sort of their own identity making. They haven't always seen themselves reflected in the visual culture of the parks, which is one of the criticisms that Disneyland usually receives. And what we've seen over time is that as America itself starts to recognize and be more inclusive of the people that truly are American, Disney changes their visual culture to reflect that. But we see it also with sort of subtle value-based rides. Um, I'm thinking of the Pirates of the Caribbean, which is one of those classic Disneyland rides that everyone feels, you know, you got to go on Pirates if you're going to Disneyland. And when it opens in 1967, it's uh, it's it's probably true to pirate history um, in that there's a lot of what we would probably call today raping and pillaging um, going on in the towns. The women particularly that are being depicted in these rides are generally um, victims of the pirates in Pirates of the Caribbean. And that remains for a while. But what's going on outside of Disneyland is the rise of feminism, right? And this desire to see women as something other than victims of their circumstances um, or as people that are put under the authority of others. And so in 1997, um, they switch around some of the scenes in the Pirates Ride so that the men are no longer chasing women. The women are chasing the men out of their town. Um, and it's sort of subtle changes like that that show that Disney is taking into account what is happening outside of their walls and trying at least a little bit to keep up with, you know, the changing American narrative. I wonder if maybe you can also elaborate on what Splash Mountain is like, because I know it was a great, great upheaval of not only uh, history, redefining of narratives, but also other bigger organizations have ended up stepping in to advise or serve as uh, counterparts to determining what that story would look like as well. It's a ride that doesn't open until the 90s, but it's based on a film that came out in the 1940s. Um, and that film is Song of the South, which itself was based on folk tales written by Joel Chandler Harris, um, who was a white man, um, but wrote down what he said were stories that he heard locally from black men um, and that he felt represented black culture around him. Those stories were problematic in themselves. And then the film that comes out um, in the 1940s is controversial from the start. Records show that Walt Disney was conscious um, that they could get this very wrong. And they did bring in um, consultants of color um, and consult with other organizations. When the film comes out, it's criticized for mainly two things, right? The A, that they're still using this pigeon dialect 
um, that's very stereotypical, and B, that it's this romanization of this sort of post-Civil War life for Black Americans um, that it really gets criticized for. And so, you know, it kind of goes away after a while. But then they need this, they need a thrill ride and they want to put it um, in what has become bear country, now critter country. And so they go with the animal part of this film. I think under the idea that maybe if you stuck to the animals, the, the racist part would sort of drop away, right? Now, Disney is reimagining that ride. Uh, they're getting rid of the Song of the South and they're putting in Princess Tiana, the first African-American princess. And people are really divided uh, about how they feel about this. Some people don't understand. Some people are extremely excited about it happening. And I think what it reveals about us as a country is way more interesting than what it reveals about, you know, just Disney fans. I wonder what does kind of advocacy look like uh, from your perspective through studying Disney um, to make it change uh, within the broader context of the Disney Corporation? Disney as a brand is sort of treated as this like property that we own nationally. And so people don't, they sometimes forget that it is at the end of the day, a company. As American values change and evolve, so do the values of Disney. Gay days are a great example. Something that I think we're all wondering is, what are gay days? That's a great question. Gay days are an independently organized event where the queer community comes out to enjoy Disneyland and Disney World. Bob remembers the very first gay day. Again, it was a different time back then. Being queer was not as socially acceptable. This was a very funny uh, situation from inside the company. It turned out that, as you know, Disneyland is everything. Everything is uh, America and apple pie and all that sort of stuff. And uh, two fellas came down to talk to uh, Disneyland about renting the park. Now, we had quite a program, which we called Sell the Park. We'd close early and a company like Bank of America or Lockheed Aircraft. They'd come in with their own employees and, uh, and rent, rent the whole park. And here comes two guys uh, with a, um, a, a temporary phony company um, in uh, West Hollywood that would like to rent the park. But they didn't say too much, but, you know, Disney often you, you know, signed a contract for a certain date. They're going to have a, a party. And then somewhere along the line, Disney found out a little bit too late who the party really was. Oh, it's, uh, it's a gay group in West Hollywood, and they got their lawyers so Disney made the decision, well, we have to get our own lawyers because we can't possibly have anything like that. But the lawyers with the West Hollywood group were far smarter and more prepared than our lawyers. So at the end of the meeting, our management looked and said, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We have to do it. <laughs> so right away, one of the concerns was, well, we don't, we don't want to offend our, our cast members. So anybody that uh, does not want to work that uh, work that shift that night, uh, we'll give them uh, backstage assignments and bring somebody else in. Well, we had so many people wanted to be sure that they were asked to serve that light. <laughs> well, that was the that was the first uh, gigantic shock of the day. The next morning. Uh, after these uh, rent-the-park parties, there's usually a lot of people bring their own booze, you know, and the park is usually a bit trashed. And the maintenance people came in and they talked to uh, our administration and they said, uh, who were those people last night? And we thought, uh-oh. And they said, 
There's nothing to clean up. Who were they? And then all of a sudden, the big shot came to the company and says, you mean the gay people are responsible? They take care of it like they're home? Well, yes, they do. So thereafter, um, they, gay days got bigger and bigger and bigger. So it was, it was fun to watch that from inside the company, which is a different view than, say, uh, gay guests on the outside of the community looking in. Uh, I, just, I just thought that was so funny. Wow, that's crazy. That's such a loop around the idea of how kind of a inclusivity meant within Disneyland culture as well. And this is a real turning point, right? Oh, not only does this community, you know, respect our property, um, they spend money here. And so just with their presence and their dollars, um, they start convincing the Disney company that they're a worthwhile part of the community. Customers and fans can turn into advocates if they don't see themselves reflected in Disney's idea of America. The rise of gay days on both coasts um, is an example of sort of people using the Disney parks as a way to say like, hey, we belong here. We belong not only in Disneyland, but in the rest of America as well. But those are not official sort of Disney company um, events. You know, they let anyone in who buys a ticket and isn't disruptive and that's that's fine. But they start to realize that there's, there's money to be made here. Um, as well as maybe it's the right thing to do, right? I'm not in the room when they make these decisions, so I can't say for sure how what percentage is motivated by sort of just b- what they believe is right and what is motivated by money. But in the 2000s, they, they finally say like, hey, this is our pride collection. Bob identifies as gay. When he was working at Disney starting in the 50s, he said sexual identities were not something anyone discussed. They only paid attention to the work being done. Well, the funny thing was nobody paid any attention to, you know, anybody's orientation about anything. And I believe the background was because when Walt started hiring people in the late 20s, especially through the 30s and 40s, animators in those days were what we called gag men. They have these funny, goofy little things you'll string together and make a story out of it and call it a cartoon. So right away, these type of people are a little on the edgy side. They're a little on the unstable. They're kind of crackpots. And some of them have personal uh, habits that you'd rather not inquire about. Walt was far more interested in what can they do for Walt's animation, and he could care less about what their private habits were. So with that kind of a background, I think uh, by the time the, uh, the gay issue got added to the fact that we had drunks and womanizers and all that, you know, all the other type of behaviors that gay was just one more thing. Uh, But treating it that way as nothing special, as just typical of uh, animators, particularly because of the gag men. And of course, the rest of us are imagineers. We're not necessarily gag men, certainly not where I'm a designer ride vehicles. There's another really beautiful moment where this idea of being accepted into the American dream came full circle. In 2019, Bob attended Hollywood's Gay Pride Parade. But this was not just any Pride Parade. Bob's friend Jeffrey R. Epstein, a former Disney executive and fan club leader, invited him to ride in his very own Disney omnibus. They said, Bob, would you like to ride in your own omnibus? Oh, I'd love to ride in it because then I could see the parade and I don't have to walk. So I sat in the right front with the driver and I went to get in it and had my name up above the where I was sitting, and with all the all the rainbow flags and decorations, I thought, 
Well, Uncle Bob, you are getting as outed as you're ever going to get now. <laughs> this is very funny. It was a treat to ride down the street and wave at everybody. And, and you know, some people recognize you, scream and yell at you and having a very, very good time. Um, I, I was so intrigued. I took one of the decorations of the balloons off and I took the sign off and I took it home. I thought, wow, I just had my proudest ride ever. It was just, it was terrific. Then, of course, I met Bethany. And when she said, Bob, would you donate your your sweaty pride shirt to the museum? I thought, really? And then she told me why. And then I thought, oh, my goodness. um, Disney is now completing a, a very important circle that it was an experiment, it endured, it became a classic, it became so Americana with parks around the world, and it's very socially aware. And the Smithsonian would like to have Disney participate in American history in a little niche with rainbow colors. And I just thought, wow. To me, that was something. I mean, like, we're really here, aren't we? Yes. I, I think that that really struck deep in my heart as as kind of understanding the whole full circle of Disneyland, its beginning stages, and you as a designer just simply trying to get, just get the work done, but yet over the years of the past couple of decades. So what do you see the balance between preserving the park's nostalgic elements and adapting to reflect those contemporary values based on these social movements. We're in quite an interesting period the last 20 years or so. Finally, we're recognizing we're a bunch of humans and we got every kind of characteristic and it's about time everybody put their foot down and recognize that and says, well, we're we're all humans. We're sharing this planet. So stop trying to pick on people because they're different. Uh, and the difference can either be by choice or it can be by uh, the DNA your parents give you. Um, but at the same time, there's a pushback uh, against this, depending upon, you know, what side of, uh, you know, color red or blue or where you live. Um, so somehow we're in a very interesting area that fascinates me. The fact that I'm uh, 92, I've had probably 88 years of watching America change. Think of that. So in a way, I think I'm in a perfect spot. I understand the 22,000 years because I got into the 22,000-year movie early where everybody else got into the movie and the, uh, late so they don't get the bigger picture. I got the bigger picture I'm eagerly watching every day what the next day brings because I'm fascinated by watching it to see where it all goes. And, of course, I can do my part, you know, when I'm in a spot that says, no, there's some silly stuff you shouldn't be doing because people are the way they are, goodness sakes. That's right, that's right. One of the biggest uh, parts that was striking to me was perhaps... Part of the exhibit showed a display of perhaps two dozen or three dozen of Disney ears. And they had different kind of colors on them. Some of them had the American flag. Some of them had uh, rainbow flags. Like, I wonder 
What what was the kind of the inspiration behind the Disney ears, and why is the Disney ear so iconic for those that attend uh, Disneyland parks? Uh, there's a real like anthropological deep dive, right, that you can do into the wearing of ears at the Disney parks. People have likened it to sort of when you enter a religious space and you have to cover your head, right? You're you're showing that you are donning the symbol of belonging in this place and you um, are part of the community, at least for the day, which is one of the reasons that the ears are so important. But what I noticed uh, over time was that there was this proliferation of ears um, made both by the Disney company and by individuals that were taking this basic black ear shape that had become so iconic of not just the Disney brand, but of this 1950s America, right? Um, Around the world, this image of Mickey Mouse and and the Mickey Mouse ear says, you know, essentially, welcome to heteronormative white 1950s America. Um, And what people did with the ears was say, we still want to keep some of this, right? We're not throwing out every, the 200 years of history that we have in America. We're going to add in parts that speak to us individually. And that for me was so powerful, right? People who were expressing their American identity, but saying, I can bring in parts of myself uh, that were not included in this 1950s narrative. So we do have, we have... um, Chinese New Year, uh, Lunar New Year ears. We have conscious ears um, from the Latinx community outside of, uh, in LA who were making them. We have pride ears. And we uh, make a point to say that, you know, they're made by both individuals and by the Disney company. So what it shows is this sort of working together of individuals and this corporation to change the face of what it means to be an American via this one symbol. And there's a journalist, Jenny Avens, who actually, I think, put it best. Um, a couple of years ago, she attended a, a Viva Navidad party at Disneyland's California Adventure. Um, and she wrote about how what she saw around her was actually this multicultural fiesta that was accessible to people of different abilities. And she said, maybe Disneyland really is our cartoon city upon a hill, right? She's referencing this idea of America as this great white city upon a hill, this idea of perfection. Um, But she said, it's a cartoon city upon a hill, which means it's not permanent, right? We can redraw it um, as we go forward. Um, And I think that that's, that's the beauty of the public relationship with the Disney parks. I had to ask what it felt like for Bob to know his work will live on for generations to come. Well, it's two things. I have to kind of separate it because I'm very aware of the danger of too much hubris. My actual real joy is I got asked to design crazy stuff. Not only Walt, but everybody else, like the people that you named. And to me, that's my um, that's my spectacular legacy is if nobody else remembers it or wasn't didn't have a good time at it. Well, I had a good time thinking it up and drawing pictures of it and making it happen and getting it to work. Uh, and some of that stuff's still here, and some stuff, of course, was was in passing. Uh, King Kong being an example. They asked me, as a Disney person, to design an outrageous thing for them. And it turned out, you know, it was a classic. I was there for 22 years. People say, oh, aren't you so sad it's gone? No. 
if it stayed there, it'd be taken out and put in a junkyard someday and be replaced by something else. But guess what? My memory of King Kong is he went out in a blaze of glory. His entire city of New York burned around him. You can't get a better <laughs> last night than that one. Wow, that's that's definitely incredible to see kind of uh, you explaining the legacy and understanding of what leadership looks like within the individual and within shaping culture itself as well. I'd love to just, I think, wrap up with two last questions. The first question I'd, for, for listeners who may also have the experience to go to the Smithsonian exhibit where you had the ability to contribute, uh, I wonder what was your involvement with that and what are your takeaways for individuals that will be visiting those exhibits for, to see more of Disneyland's history? I've had a lot of people uh, see it and, you know, and write to me or phone me and say, oh, we saw that. Oh, that's the Smithsonian Institution. And your old shirt is in there. You know, it's like in an itty-bitty part of America, but it's still a little part of America. And it was generated by an experience of one day I'm riding in my own invented omnibus and I'm writing with a sign over my head saying, oh, Bob, Bob is a rainbow boy, and he's out there having a very, very good time. And it gets recognized by the Smithsonian. I think, in hindsight, in the future, that would be quite an interesting little change point in, in history. That's true. And I want to reflect on something you alluded or mentioned to earlier, which is that your imagination is part of America's imagination. Do you mind talking a little bit about that and what that means for listeners who are uh, trying to understand your thought process and your mentality? Well, I can only speak for myself. The, the joy of being able to be a free thinker, uh, that it's the reverse of education. Uh, a college typically has four years. It's like a water trough. The students are down in the water trough and you flow from the high end is the first year, and the low end is the fourth year, and then you flow out the end with a diploma. And it's assumed that if you follow the course from A to Z, you will be successful. And I find that's not true at all. I find that that's only the start. The person with a diploma had better make sure they've got their own thinking, their own imagination, and their own flexibility to see that there's all kinds of ways to do stuff and you don't want any shackles of overeducation to get in your way. That's, that's, that's one man's view. That's my view. That's right. That's right. And that's something that I hope to embody after listening to your fantastic, phenomenal career journey and uh, your particular ideas around legacy building and contributing for generations to come. Bob has some closing insights that are particularly relevant to us as students. Well, in any endeavor... You just should do something simple like way Walt always said, just do it right. And you think about that, you'll know what right means. There's an integrity of purpose. There's a purity of design. There's a purity of real story, real story. And whatever you do, things that contributes to a story. There's people that can write. There's people that can act. There's people that can animate. And in my case, I got to do some vehicles that would fit a story, you know, by their shape and look and size and, and, and time frame. 
This covers any line of work anybody would ever do is just those thoughts and tell yourself what right means and learn all the things you need to do to have your integrity, your personal integrity has to be your product at all times because if you do it good, there's, there's people that watch and they might get influenced to think the same way. Wow. And with that, that wraps up our conversation. Bob, thank you so much. It's my pleasure to help you anytime. Thank you so much, Bethany. Thank you, Victor. Thank you again to original Disney Imagineer Bob Gurr and Smithsonian curator Bethany Bemis. What are you taking away from this experience? I have taken away so, so much. Who knew how important it was for amusement parks to play in representing the narratives of our country and also the ever-evolving change that comes to reflect the state of our present time. And how has this experience changed how you think about the American dream? Ultimately, I have become more hopeful about the American dream as we see parks like Disney unfold new changes to better reflect the diversity and inclusion of the American story. Follow on Textbooked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, write us a review. We'd love to know what you think of Untextbooked. Learn more at untextbook.com. Sign up for emails and become a member for added perks. Plus, every week, we share a glossary of terms and other learning resources designed for teachers and students. For behind-the-scenes content, follow us on Instagram at Untextbooked. That's all for this episode of Untextbooked. I'm producer Victor E. And I'm Gabe Hostin. Untextbooked, 